Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hey friends, welcome to another Bible Study podcast, and uh, we're continuing our series in Revelation. In his book called After the Rapture, Pastor David Jeremiah shares the story of a restaurant worker in New York City that had gone inside of a large walk-in refrigerator on September the 11th, 2001. When he emerged a while later, no one was there. There were no kitchen workers, no staff, and no customers. The restaurant was completely empty. When that worker stepped outside, he saw smoke and debris and chaos, but still no people. Having been inside that soundproof walk-in refrigerator at ground zero, that worker had missed the initial impact of the 9-11 terrorist attacks on New York City. You know, in some ways, that will be the experience of many people in the moments following the rapture of the church. Suddenly, dramatically, and unexpectedly, hundreds of millions of Christians around the world will abruptly disappear. In many instances, people will witness that disappearance right before their very eyes. In other cases, those disappearances will be discovered in intervals of seconds, minutes, hours, and days. The chaos created by that sudden event will drive people into sheer panic, affecting the billions of people who have been left behind. Because of all the security systems in homes and buildings, businesses, roadways, cars, and on cell phones, there will be no shortage of videos capturing those unexplained disappearances. There's an interesting website called the Rapture Ready Index. I don't know if you've ever taken a look at that. And this index takes into account 45 primary factors, such as Middle East conflict, nuclear nations, earthquakes, volcanoes, floods, famine, debt, inflation, unemployment, interest rates, global turmoil, terrorism, anti-Semitism, moral decline, and many other factors. They assign scores to each of those factors and then calculate them into a total score, indicating how close we might be to the rapture. Now, the website clearly states that they are in no way attempting to predict the timing of the rapture, but are simply acting like, well, something like a spiritual Dow Jones index, if you will, for the last days. And so based on their 45 factors, their index suggests that any score above 160 means fasten your seatbelt. Well, right now, their index sits at a calculated score of 187. I'm not endorsing their calculations, but I think we would all agree that we're in the fasten your seatbelt stage of the last days. Returning to our series in Revelation, we now come to chapter 4. We've completed our look at the seven churches, and this now brings us to the third and final and largest section of Revelation, chapters 4 to 22. Now, you might remember that we had read towards the end of chapter 1 that Revelation provides its own natural outline. John was instructed to write the things that he had seen, and that was recorded in chapter 1. 
Then he was told to write the things which are, and we studied those seven letters to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And finally, John was instructed to write the things which will take place shortly after this, and that brings us now to chapter 4 and on through the remainder of the final book of the Bible. So let's move ahead as we begin our reading. We're going to go to verse 1 of chapter 4, and John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice that I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me and saying, Come up here, and I will show you things uh, which must take place after this. Immediately, John writes, I was in the Spirit. The title of my message is Caught Up to Heaven. As a religious prisoner banished to the island of Patmos, the elderly Apostle John is suddenly and dramatically transported from Patmos up to heaven. In the beginning of verse 2, John describes this experience as being in the Spirit. Boy, haven't we heard people say that before. I was in the Spirit. But anyway, the first question that emerges is whether John went up bodily into heaven where he received this vision, or was he only transported in his spirit to receive this vision? The wording seems to indicate that he went up in the spirit and that his physical body remained behind. Now, the only other person in scripture who went to heaven, received a vision, and then returned to write about it was the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. And in Paul's own words, he said, Whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he says, I was caught up to the third heaven. So like Paul, we should probably conclude the same thing about John here, that whether he was in or out of the body for this vision, only God knows. But like Paul, what we do know is that John was definitely caught up to heaven. The next question that emerges from these verses is whether or not this description refers to the rapture. And and please listen so that there's no misunderstanding. In the context here, these words are referring specifically to John's vision of the future that he experienced there at the end of the first century. John was caught up to heaven and given a vision of things to come. But with that now being said, this gives us a picture of what the rapture will look like. When we looked at the seven letters to the seven churches, remember we talked about how they were, yes, actual letters to actual churches in actual cities at the end of the first century. But we also talked about how the seven churches were also a panoramic picture of church history. Well, in the same way, the Apostle John being caught up to heaven at the end of the first century is a picture of how Christians will be caught up to meet the Lord and go to heaven at the rapture. In our quote-unquote picture here, the similarities are unmistakable. First off, we see the similarity just in the chronological order of events in that the seven churches represent the church age, And then after reading about that, the rapture of the church will close the church age. Uh, The church is no longer mentioned in the book of Revelation until we read about the saints returning with Jesus at his second coming in chapter 19. In chapters 4 to 18, there is no mention whatsoever of the church on earth. This will be a fulfillment of the promise of Jesus to the church in Philadelphia that he will keep his faithful believers from and out of the tribulation. The chronological order of events is also seen in the first words here in verse 1, after these things. 
In other words, after the church age, described in chapters 2 and 3, comes the rapture pictured here in chapter 4. Then after the rapture comes the tribulation, and we're going to read about that starting in chapter 6. Secondly, John is caught up from earth to heaven, which is what will happen at the moment of the rapture. As Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord. For Christians, one of two things is going to happen, either a resurrection or a rapture. When Jesus comes back, the believers who have died will be resurrected, while the believers who are still alive will be raptured. The rapture will remove the church from the earth, and the church will never be the same. Neither will the earth. The rapture will become the global evacuation of all believers. In 1 Thessalonians 4, in Paul's description of the rapture, his phrase caught up is the Greek word harpazo, meaning to take up suddenly. That word's used 13 times in the New Testament. For example, let's see, remember in, remember in Acts chapter 8, um, it described the Lord catching Philip away after he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. Paul used the same word in 2 Corinthians 12 when he spoke about being caught up himself to the third heaven. The Latin word is raptos, and it also means to carry off suddenly. And from that Latin word raptos, we get our English word rapture. Now, the word rapture is not used uh, by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, but it is the literal meaning of believers being caught up. In fact, the word rapture is not found anywhere in the Bible, but then again, several of our familiar biblical words and terms are also not found in the Bible, like trinity, omnipotent, discipleship, incarnation, millennium, and other words and terms. But we use those terms regularly to describe what the Bible teaches. Hey, in fact, the word Bible is not in the Bible. Skeptics love to point out that the word rapture is not in the Bible, but then again, the word skeptic isn't in the Bible either. So there you go. And if it makes you more comfortable and you're uncomfortable using the word rapture, then call it the harpazo or the raptos or the catching away, whatever makes it better for you. Thirdly, then, the voice which John hears and which calls him up to heaven sounds like a trumpet. Going back to Paul's description of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, one of the sounds that believers will hear at the moment of the rapture is the trumpet of God. In the Old Testament, trumpets were used for a wide variety of reasons. It included summoning God's people together for a journey, as we see in Numbers chapter 10. Well, this trumpet blast will be sounded to gather God's people together for their journey to heaven with Jesus at the rapture. I read that during the Civil War, an army chaplain had written in his journal about the troops sleeping out in the open fields. During the night, several inches of snow fell down, and at dawn, all those snow-covered soldiers looked like grave mounds. But then the trumpet sounded, and all those soldiers rose up in unison like a mass resurrection. That's not unlike how it will be when the rapture trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise up to meet the Lord Jesus. At the moment of the rapture, there will be complete chaos here on earth as various vehicles will veer aimlessly with no drivers. Airplanes will lose their pilots in mid-flight. All kinds of equipment will be running with no one at the controls. Meals will be cooking on the stovetop with no one there to tend to them in the kitchen. 
an unsaved person will roll over in bed to discover that their Christian spouse is gone. An unsaved father playing with his daughter on a swing set will push her out and only the empty seat will return. A Christian surgeon performing open-heart surgery will suddenly vanish. Looting will quickly spread as homes and businesses are left wide open with no one around. There will be a mad rush on grocery stores for food and water supplies, as well as on banks for money, on gas stations for gasoline, and gun stores for ammunition. One of the interesting questions related to the rapture is how the remaining unsaved world that is left behind will explain what has happened. How do you explain the unexplainable? As world leaders and the news media scramble to understand how or why hundreds of millions or perhaps a billion people suddenly disappeared, one likely conclusion will be a global terrorist attack of some kind. Scientists might put forth some sort of a time warp theory. Many will happily conclude that God has judged the Christians for being intolerant and judgmental troublemakers. After all, the majority of world religions agree that there are many ways to God, while those narrow-minded Christians declare that salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ. So finally, God judges those religious radicals. I personally believe that one of the most popular and likely explanations will be that of a massive UFO abduction. I do not think that the recent government public hearings this past summer about UFOs was any kind of a coincidence. For decades, the government has always denied the existence of UFOs and been very tight-lipped about it. And while they still don't acknowledge them, all of a sudden, they're willing to talk openly and publicly about it. Logically speaking, it's hard to argue against the existence of UFOs. And what I simply mean by that is there's lots of visual evidence for flying objects that have never been identified. But as for life on other planets and in other regions of the universe, there is no evidence for that. And the Bible never mentions that. When people claim to have experienced an alien encounter, uh, we as believers already know that demonic activity is the most likely scenario behind it all. But I'm convinced that a popular explanation for the disappearance of so many people all at one moment will be that of an alien abduction. You know, when you think about it, though, the Bible does describe believers as aliens in this world. So I guess in that sense, the rapture will be kind of an alien abduction. Beam me up, Jesus. The good news is that many people who have been told about the rapture who or have attended like a church service and heard about it, will suddenly realize that what they heard was true. This will prompt many unsaved people then to turn to Christ. The rapture of the church may very well turn out to be the greatest evangelistic catalyst in world history. Sadly, they could have trusted in Christ before the rapture, and now they will have to face the horrors of the tribulation period. But even so, many people will be saved. Coming back here to verse 1, John sees a door open in heaven. All Christians desire to know more about heaven. Heaven is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible. I think the count I saw was 276 just in the New Testament. And yet there is so much about heaven that we don't understand and we don't know. 
There's no shortage of people today who claim that they've gone to heaven and have allegedly come back to tell us all about it. And you can order their books on Amazon and read their accounts. Oftentimes their stories are bizarre to say the least. In contrast to that, we have two very trustworthy human witnesses in scripture who have been to heaven and back, Paul and John. Not two of the Beatles, but two of the apostles. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote briefly of his experience in heaven and then stated that he was not permitted to speak about what he saw and heard. Here now in Revelation, John has also gone up to heaven, but he is actually instructed to record what he sees and hears. John then gives us reliable details and descriptions. So let's read a few more verses. Let's go back and pick up in verse 2. Behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In verse 2, when John is supernaturally transported up into heaven, he sees a throne, and the one sitting on the throne is God the Father. We know it's the Father because the Holy Spirit is distinguished in verse 5, and then Jesus is standing next to the throne in the following chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. The throne in heaven is a key topic here in chapter 4, and God's throne is mentioned 12 times just in this chapter. However, we must remember that the true focus of this chapter is God. The throne of God is nothing without God on the throne. And therefore, the central theme of heaven and of this chapter is God himself. Now, I hope we don't miss this, but this picture in heaven of God seated on his throne reminds us of one of the most important truths that will sustain us all the days that we are here on this earth. And that is that God is on the throne and therefore God is in control. The believers that John was writing to were facing intense persecution and suffering for their faith. But the first thing John shares with them about heaven is that God is still on the throne. God's still in control. God's still sovereign. The message is the same for you and for me. Whatever difficulty we may be facing, God is in control. The the throne symbolizes God's authority and his sovereign rule. It was uh, Pastor Adrian Rogers who said, Sorrow looks back, worry looks around, but hope looks up. In verse 3, John makes an attempt to describe the indescribable. And moving forward, we need to keep that in mind, that as John gives us his firsthand accounts of the things that he sees in the future, we need to remember that he's limited by his lack of understanding of everything that he sees, and therefore a lack of ability to be able to describe these future sights. And so often he tells us it looks like this and it looks like that, and he's doing the best that he can. Here then, John describes what he sees as being like precious stones, jasper and sardius, along with a rainbow. Later in chapter 21, the jasper stone is described as being crystal clear, so probably like a diamond, and the Sardius stone comes from the area of Sardis, which is where one of the seven churches was located that Jesus wrote to. 
That stone is blood red like a ruby. One way to understand John's use of these two stones is by comparing it to the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. On the breastplate were 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Sardius and Jasper were the first and the last stones on the breastplate. At the same time, there was a rainbow all around the throne, with emerald being the predominant color theme. I wonder if L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz and created the Emerald City, you know, the royal palace and residence of the great and powerful Oz, perhaps got his idea from these verses. The Greek word here for rainbow is iris, which means halo. So rather than a half-circle rainbow like we normally see after the rainfalls, this is a full and round rainbow encircling the throne of God. The circle would represent eternity, unending. In spite of the fact that the rainbow has been hijacked and misused and perverted in our society today, we look to the Bible for its true meaning. The rainbow is first mentioned in Genesis, appearing after the global flood judgment ended as the symbol of God's promise to Noah and to his descendants that God would never destroy the earth again with a flood. The rainbow then reminds us of God's grace and mercy as well as how God has kept his promise. It's significant that the rainbow is mentioned in both the first and the last books of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation. The fact that the first verses in this chapter give us a picture of the rapture and the safe arrival of believers into heaven before God's judgment falls upon the earth is perhaps symbolized by the rainbow around the throne. Again, the rainbow is a symbol of promise, and God always keeps his promises. Well, that takes us to verse 4 and to a mysterious group of heavenly residents identified as the 24 elders. Much discussion has come from this verse in regards to who these 24 elders are. Are they angels, or are they perhaps some segment of God's people in heaven? And if so, what segment? The Bible itself helps us to unlock their identity. First of all, these elders are not angels. In Revelation 5.11, the angels and the elders are listed there in the same verse, but as separate groups. Furthermore, angels are never described as sitting on thrones uh, in heaven. Angels do not rule, they serve God. And with that, angels are never mentioned as being clothed in white robes or wearing gold crowns on their head. And finally, the Greek word here for elders is never used of angels anywhere in Scripture, only used of men. Secondly, the promise to receive crowns, be clothed in white, and sit on thrones in heaven were the promises given to believers in the seven churches who remain faithful, as we just read in the previous two chapters. So clearly, this group is made up of people, which leads us to the next question, who are these people? In the Old Testament, Israel, God's chosen people, are represented by 12 tribes. And in the New Testament, the people of God in the church are represented by the 12 apostles. And so here we have 12 plus 12, 24 elders. Later on in chapter 21 of Revelation, we read that the heavenly city will have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on the gates and the 12 names of the 12 apostles on the foundation. Therefore, some, maybe many, believe that the 24 elders represent all of the redeemed people of God. Now, others believe that this group of elders specifically represents just the New Testament believers that have been raptured. 
one argument in that direction is that it is the New Testament believers who are promised thrones, crowns, and white robes in heaven. Faithful New Testament believers are promised that they will rule and reign with Christ. And back in chapter 1, God promised to make them kings and priests. And going back to our earlier discussion about these verses being a quote-unquote picture of the rapture, this then would represent the New Testament church believers up in heaven. However, the Old Testament saints are also in heaven at this point, even though they won't receive their glorified bodies until the second coming of Jesus. Therefore, while arguments, I guess, can be made both ways, what is clear is that this group of 24 elders represents God's redeemed people in heaven. In verse 5, we read that lightnings and thunders and voices proceed from the throne. Those are all symbols of impending judgment, and it lets us know that God's judgment is about to come upon the earth. One of my favorite things about living here in Tennessee is all of the thunder and lightning we receive. I absolutely love thunderstorms. There's even a clinical term for people who love thunderstorms and a clinical term for people who are very fearful of thunderstorms. But there are also biblical terms, and here in verse 4, the people who do not fear these judgment storms of God are called believers up in heaven. And those who do fear God's judgment storms are identified as the unsaved on the earth. Here in Tennessee, I use weather apps to keep up with approaching thunderstorms and potential tornadoes. But as Christians, we read our Bibles to keep up on the storm warnings that come from God. When this tribulation storm of judgment arrives, it will be worldwide. Well, let's take a moment to read the rest of our verses in this chapter. Let's go back now and pick up in verse 6, please. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in the front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like a calf. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes all around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to God, who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." Well, here in verse 6, we read about the sea in front of the throne, which has an appearance of glass, like a crystal sea, if you will. However, uh, John writes later in chapter 21 that there is no sea or ocean in heaven. So clearly, he's attempting to describe the area in front of the throne as best as he can. I've read some different suggestions from different commentators as to what the sea of glass represents. And my conclusion after reading all that is that they don't know. But it's worth noting that back in chapter 24 of Exodus, when Moses, Aaron, and some of the leaders of Israel went up on Mount Sinai, they saw God, and the area in front of God had the same similar glassy appearance. Next to the throne were four living creatures, and there's no guesswork here since Ezekiel 10 
tells us that these living creatures are a high order of angels called cherubim. We first meet the cherubim back in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. After God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their sin, we read that he stationed two cherubim at the entrance of the garden to prevent them from returning. When the tabernacle was built in the wilderness, uh, you'll recall that two cherubim angels made of gold were placed at each end of the mercy seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. As we read John's description here of the four living creatures, some people might be uh, tempted to conclude that these angelic beings are bizarre, even weird, eyes all over the place, multiple wings and all of that. And let me just say that probably comes from watching too many Twilight Zone marathons on television. And I actually believe that the opposite is true. These angels reflect the beauty and holiness of God and are therefore very beautiful themselves. These cherubim have the distinct privilege and honor of ascribing praise to God. Day and night, without ceasing, they help to lead the heavenly praise of God on the throne. They have six wings, and back in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 6, we learn that two wings were for flying, two to cover their faces, and the other two wings to cover their feet. This represents the fact that they are standing on holy ground before the throne and seeing a holy God. No wonder they ascribe praise to God by crying out, Holy, holy, holy. The threefold repetition of holy undoubtedly points to the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, there's a very good reason why we refer to our church services as worship services, because worship is the most important activity of the local church. All ministry should flow from out of our worship. It was A.W. Tozer who said, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the Word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. In verse 7, the four cherubim are described as having the appearance of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. You know, going all the way back in church history to the second century, the early church leader and writer, whose name was Irenaeus, saw a comparison between this description and the fourfold way in which Jesus is presented in the Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel, he presents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark's Gospel presents Jesus as a servant, symbolized by the calf. Luke's gospel focuses in on the humanity of Jesus and therefore as a man, and John's gospel focuses in on the deity of Christ symbolized by the flying eagle. Even the order of these descriptions, lion, calf, man, and eagle, is in the order of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then in verse 10, we find that whenever these cherubim give glory and honor and thanksgiving to God, the 24 elders, which represent believers in heaven, will cast their crowns before the throne. Those crowns represent the rewards and honor given to us by God. However, we will immediately cast those crowns before the throne out of adoration and appreciation for all that God has done for us. And then we will praise him by saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We were created by God to know him and to worship him. 
Therefore, each and every time that we worship him, we are fulfilling the very purpose for which we have been created. Worship is the purpose for creation, and worship is the priority of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. <music> 